0: Welcome back for another episode of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and today I am joined by Dr. Christopher Tignanelli, who is the Scientific Director at the Program for Clinical Artificial Intelligence at the U of M Center for Learning Health Systems Science. He's also the Director for the U of M Center for Quality Outcomes Discovery and Evaluation and the Chair for Health Information Technology Committee for the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Tignanelli is a U of M physician who is recommended to our podcast by radiology resident Nicholas Parisis. Despite being a critical care and acute care surgeon, Dr. Tignanelli's work crosses specialty boundaries and is focused on improving patient experience and outcome. He has a pioneering spirit from creating his own major to pursue bioinformatics to pivoting his work to help COVID-19 patients during the pandemic. In 2021, he was named a healthcare hero by the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal for his work. He continues to serve patients, mentor young physicians, and is looking for the next big innovation in healthcare and AI. Dr. Tignanelli, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Before we get started jumping into the medicine and machine learning aspect of our episode today, I would wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Maybe where did you grow up? how did you kind of come into this sphere of medicine, machine learning, whatever you would like to share with us.
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, So I grew up in uh, New Jersey, and uh, I first started to get involved in machine learning uh, when I went to college. So I went to the College of William & Mary in Virginia. And when I went there, I teamed up with a researcher called Greg Smith, and uh, he was in a field back then called computational biology. And we chat, and he's like, what are you really interested in? I'm like, I'm I like math. I like computers. I like biology. I'm interested in going to medical school. And, uh, I'm like, you know, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of all these, these majors. Cause there's not a major that kind of puts all of them together. And back then he's like, well, have you ever heard of bioinformatics? It's this, it's this new field. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, I haven't. So we actually made a major and I was, uh, my true majors in interdisciplinary studies, but I was one of the first bioinformatics majors at William and Mary back then. And, uh, it was it was great um really putting together that curriculum that allowed me to get experience in those three different fields and then from there i went to medical school back in new jersey and then residency at uh, unc chapel hill where i was in a general surgery residency and i took two years off to go into research and i worked in a uh, pancreatic cancer lab where i did work on kinome reprogramming so looking at how the kinome responds to treatments with kinase inhibitors and then i went to michigan after that i did a fellowship in trauma critical care and got involved with the researcher called mark pamela there and uh, we did a lot of research on uh, big data looking at uh, trauma quality improvement a lot of statistical work there and then ultimately came to university of minnesota where i was given the opportunity to really leverage these experiences and build a, a program in a biomedical ai research
0: that is so cool. So it sounds like the William Mary, you were the first bioinformatics major. Do you have there been bioinformatics majors since you that you know of?
1: I do not know if that is a formal major or not. I know a lot of colleges um, do have um, pathways for informatics majors or computational biology or applied science, but I'm not sure uh, if there has been one afterwards.
0: Yeah. And I might and be it the also- first only. That is very cool. That is super interesting. I am curious also, so you kind of mentioned a little bit of your, your background is critical care, acute care. Um, and a lot of our listeners are maybe people who are discerning their future medical specialty. How did you come into the critical care and acute care field?
1: Yeah. So what I, what I really love about surgery, what really drew me to surgery is the ability to fix a disease process. Um, a lot of a lot of um, times, what we do is we have medicines and such that can help, you know, slow down or mitigate progression of a disease. But with surgery, you know, if someone has like a dead piece of intestine, for example, we can go and resect that and essentially you know, cure that disease right away. And that really drew me in; it was fascinating, and uh, and I absolutely loved my anatomy rotations during medical school. And with the acute care surgery, it's it's really fascinating that you kind of you kind of get to do. Um, uh, uh, lots of different types of uh, of surgical care. So what that means is I get to do emergency general surgery. So That might be appendicitis or hernias or gallbladder disease or something like that. I get to do trauma care. So that might be a motor vehicle crash or uh, a stab wound or gunshot wound or something like that. And we do the surgical management of that um, as well as managing the patients afterwards on the floor. Um, and then in critical care, it's fascinating in that we. Get to do the whole realm of critical care. We uh, might cover a patient who has diabetic ketoacidosis one day, the next day, a bad traumatic brain injury. Someone's having an acute heart attack, um, or someone has intraabdominal sepsis. So, and and also in that, we get to do ECMO, which is uh, essentially like dialysis for uh, respiratory or cardiac failure. So it's it's a fascinating field, rapidly growing. A lot of cool. Um, new advances being made in the field. And it just really drew me in.
0: Sounds like you see a pretty wide variety of patients. And I'm also curious, you mentioned the ECMO. Um, are you familiar at all with, I know the University of Minnesota has pioneered some cool projects about like ECMO mm-hmm. vehicles and like yeah. first responders being more trained for that sort of situation. Have you had any experience with that?
1: So I've not, um, most of the ECMO that I do is in the, uh, is for respiratory failure ECMO. So most of that's in the hospital. Um, a lot of that, um, mobile ECMO that is done is for, um, like an acute cardiac arrest, for example, where they might cannulate someone out in the field and then bring them in on the, on the ECMO van, for example, or bring them in to get quickly cannulated. But, uh, a lot of that is more VA ECMO. And most of what I do is more in the V realm. Okay.
0: And you mentioned, you know, you deal with a lot of respiratory distress patients, and I can imagine mm-hmm. that this may be increased during the coronavirus pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And then have you had any AI projects related to the intersection of, you know, coronavirus and acute care?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things that we do in, uh, as a ACMO provider provider, is, um, is we take care of patients that have um, very severe respiratory illnesses. So h one n one was another big um, one when there was a big surge of uh, of uh, ECMO cases. Um, and obviously uh, coronavirus was was additionally um, another disease process that had a large surge of uh, of ECMO cases. Um, so um yeah, we uh, I worked at the uh, cohorting hospital. So University of Minnesota was um, somewhat unique in that we actually set up a cohorting process where um, a lot of our resources for uh, Covid, were cohorted at originally Bethesda hospital and then St. Joe's hospital. Um, And that was a, was a really interesting experience. It was a whole hospital that was dedicated to a single disease process. Everyone that worked there treated ECMO or treated COVID patients. There were no other patients that were in those, in those units being treated. Um, And that's obviously very different than how healthcare is, is normally deployed. Um, But because of that, um, we, you know, uh, our whole research lab um, pivoted to do COVID research in early 2020. Um, so I helped co-direct a group called the Minnesota Critical Care Outcomes Research Effort, or MinCORE. That's a group of about 30 or so researchers at Minnesota, UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, Medical College of Wisconsin. And uh, we focus on critical care topics. And we might do database um, research um, more like causal inference or association type of research or AI machine learning type work. And when COVID came, we pivoted the entire research group towards COVID research. And uh, I think ultimately the group put out over 20 publications related to COVID. Um, we developed a data infrastructure and that's a critical piece whenever you do artificial intelligence work. You can't have a successful AI strategy if you don't first have a successful data strategy. So one of the first things we we said was we need to build a database that can answer all the questions that we're going to have related to COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, it took us a period of time, but we worked with our health system and health therapy to build such a database. It updated every day. Um, it integrated natural language processing as well as structural data elements. It had images as well. It was really cutting edge. And uh, we were able to use that database to really leverage a lot of projects, looking at what medications might potentially be helpful for people with COVID. And uh, that led to various clinical trials that we launched out of Minnesota. Um, we launched a trial in Losartan. There's recently a, a trial that got published a couple of weeks ago in New England Journal of Medicine looking at um, metformin, fluvoxamine, and ivermectin. Um, and a lot of those, really, those the interest in those uh, drugs came from observational studies that we did, leveraging this data resource. And then I mentioned we did a lot of AI work, which I'm happy to go into a lot more details on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, how I was first exposed to your work was in the realm of radiology, and I yep. think someone had mentioned a um, looking at chest X-rays and predicting COVID nineteen likelihood. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So um, in in AI, there's a couple different branches of AI. So one of them is uh, is natural language processing, so that's uh, analyzing notes or you know written text or, or spoken text, and then another one is computer vision, and this is uh, developing algorithms that could interpret images like radiology images or pathology images or photographs or videos. And uh, in 2018, I met with a researcher Ju Sun in the Department of uh, Computer Science at uh, University of Minnesota. We identified that there was a gap and that we didn't have a biomedical computer vision research lab. So we had sat down and mapped out what such a lab would look like. Um, We identified original use case, it was actually gonna be rib fractures back then. And uh, you started really moving forward on the, you know, you have to, when you build a lab and it didn't exist before, there's a lot of infrastructure you need. How are you gonna get the data? Um, Where are you gonna train the data? Um, Do you have HIPAA compliant GPU resources, which are typically needed to do that? Do you have an annotation system? Etc. So we mapped out a strategy to do that. That took about a year, year and a half, and then COVID hit. So when that happened, we naturally pivoted over to COVID. We're like, okay, we asked the question originally, can we build an AI system that can identify rib fracture? Now let's look at, can we build an AI system that could identify COVID? And we weren't the first people to think of that. Other people were publishing these really optimistic um, models that they built using x-rays or CAT scans of an AI system that could read them and predict that someone had COVID. They had essentially unnatural performance um, on some of the early papers that were published. And uh, so we wanted to see, could we, we recreate that performance and then how would these models actually perform in real care? Because again, these were made on you know, publicly available data sets and you know, publicly available chest X-ray data sets. So we um, obtained uh, tens of thousands of X-rays um, and, uh, identified if someone had COVID or not based on their COVID PCR status. And we trained, uh, algorithms that could identify COVID or not based on images. Um, we supplemented our data with publicly available data so that we weren't just using data in our own institution. We also developed partnerships with Indiana university, Emory university and university of Florida Gainesville. And, um, And we train the models and, you know, we found a lot of the same things that some of the early papers found. We found that when we validate on publicly available data, we get this unrealistic performance. We were getting like 98% accuracy or higher um, using these publicly available data sets. But what we found on real patient data is is that you see a significant performance drop. You're you're talking around 70% or so accuracy. and the way that we tested this was we actually built the model into, into Epic and ran it invisible in the background to see, you know, if this was deployed, how would it have performed? And we published that a couple months ago, and it was actually on the cover of Radiology AI. Um, and uh, it was really interesting work. And since then, you know, our research group has really expanded. We've gotten additional funding, and we are now branching into a lot of other um, projects um, in the computer vision realm and biomedical AI.
0: So it sounds like the initial reason for this resource was for rib fractures. Will you yeah. p- pivot back to that project kind of now that the COVID pandemic is maybe starting to simmer a little bit?
1: Yeah, great question. So we actually, um, in 2021, we did train a model for rib fractures, and uh, we're in the process of external validation with the uh, University of Florida right now. Um, the model performs really well on our uh, Health Fairview data. But of course we want to see if we, you know, how generalizable is this model? Does it work outside of our own institution? I think that's one thing that's really important. Whenever, uh, if, you, if you're an AI researcher or machine learning researcher and you build a model, um, you'll see papers that are published that only have what we would call internal validation. So they might train on their own local institution's data and hold out some of that data and then test how would it have performed. Um, and uh, I think it's a little more rigorous if you can always get data from other institutions um, externally, and then show like, how, how generalizable is this model. And you think that's an obvious thing, but it's, it's not routinely done in a lot of the published literature. Um, and uh, it, also, you know, it, it also speaks to the importance of having external collaborations. You can't just do it alone in a single institution working in a silo, but you need a bunch of partners um, working together to do this stuff.
0: Absolutely. I am curious. What do you think it is about the external data sets that causes that, that significant drop? I mean, you mentioned, you said 98% Mm -hmm. validity for the internal data data set, and then 70% for the external. What do you, what do you think is the cause for that pretty significant drop?
1: Oh, to clarify the drop. So the 98% was on publicly available data when we, when we validated it on, Um, that data is not really realistic the internal data at um, M health Fairview uh, performance was better. It wasn't ninety eight percent. It's in the radiology paper, but it was better, but it also wasn't ninety eight percent though, I guess. but yeah, but we regardless, we did see a performance drop going externally. Each institution is different in the patients that they treat, and uh, you're going to see natural variation there. You also might see variation in the prevalence of a disease. so, that's a that really uh, impacts the uh, performance of a model, what the prevalence of a disease is, for example. So that'll that'll impact your performance. Um, and uh, there might be differences in how uh, images are obtained that maybe uh, differ between institutions that could potentially uh, impact um, performance of models. So there's a lot of different things. Um, but essentially no institution, no two institutions anywhere in the world are exactly the same.
0: Okay, interesting. So you've kind of threaded throughout this, your talk to us today about, you know, the trauma patients that you've worked with, um, what sort of projects are you working on for improving emergency care um, and in the trauma or critical care setting? What do you see as being the future for that area?
1: Yeah, so I think the trauma and critical care are definitely areas that would really benefit from artificial intelligence. Um, One of the things that we're really interested in predicting is, you know, which patient can we predict when a patient is going to decompensate? So if you think about like how healthcare works in a hospital, um, you're probably familiar with the rapid response experience. So if a patient, you know, decompensates, if their heart rate goes up, if they drop their blood pressure, they develop respiratory response, we call a rapid response. And what happens is a team of uh, nurses, clinicians, respiratory therapists um, go and evaluate the patient and try to rescue that patient. Um, they have to intubate them, give them blood, antibiotics, transfer them to the ICU, et cetera. And uh, our goal is, can we take this reactive um, uh, approach to delivering emergent care to decompensating patient? and make it preemptive? Can we identify two hours before the patient's already dropped their blood pressure or already coded and their heart stopped or they're already in respiratory failure? Can we identify it a couple hours ahead of time and deliver the same team to the patient, a rapid response team, um, but ward off that um, event happening? And would that improve outcomes? I hypothesize it would. And that's that's one of the big things that we're really focusing on. There's a, a mentee of mine, Thomas Bird, He just received a K award to we've built models that can predict um, the probability of someone decompensating over the next ensuing hours. And he's uh, his project is really focusing on evaluating if those how they work in real clinical care and if they actually what what impact they have on uh, on patient outcomes.
0: That's fantastic. And I would, I would also imagine that it might even have an impact on the care team like reducing stress, yeah. um, and you know helping to predict some of those events in advance I think that's very interesting.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. I want
0: to make sure we have some time for our conclusion questions because we asked them of all of our guests I think they're super interesting you I hope you think so as well. Um, My first question for you is, and we won't hold you to this answer, but what do you think the future of AI in medicine will look like in 10 years?
1: In 10 years, I think that we will get to the realm of a lot of trials and a lot of evaluation of AI-enabled tools. I don't think that we'll be at the point. I think that everyone, you know, whenever we give someone a 10-year question, people give a response that um, you know this XYZ is going to be ubiquitous, I don't think we'll be there in 10 years. But I do think that we'll have a lot of tools that are really going into trials and some are potentially working out and transitioning to becoming ubiquitous in care um, and others aren't. You, know, you look right now, there's very few AI clinical trials that are being done. I think that we're really in the building stage. We're building, you know, we, we had this term big data, and I think some of the conceptions of what big data was five years ago are, are not truly big data. And I think right now we're really in the realm of big data. And uh, I think that, that a lot of we're really in, I think, the building phase of AI models. And I do think that these tools will be launching into trials over the next five to 10 years and we will be building a lot of new uh, AI capabilities that will be transforming care after that.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, the first step is building the infrastructure and just having mm-hmm. it in place to do this work. So I think that, that the continued building and then finally getting things into trials will definitely be a, um, a a theme over the next 10 years. My next question for you is a little bit more personal and uh, you can answer this as a career thing or as a personal life item. But the question is, what is your biggest failure and what'd you learn from it?
1: Let's see, my biggest failure. Great question. I think my biggest failure was probably one of the first times when I I came, when I first came to University of Minnesota, I wanted to develop this, uh, uh, a couple databases. I wanted to develop a critical care database. I wanted to develop a a rib fracture database, a structured database. And I went about it um, in a route that uh, was very time consuming. Um. ultimately took us over a year to kind of build this data set. And uh, it was really just myself and a single data analyst that were kind of building this data set. There was some elements of manual data abstraction as well. And I think that, you know, just a couple of years later, I kind of learned from that and learned, you know, you need a huge team to kind of do this, to do all the appropriate um, uh, validations of the data, um, the, um, the construction of the data, storage of the data, all of that. Because ultimately we built this data set and we never really used it for anything. So it was a large waste of time, I think. And uh, now we've kind of learned from that and we've hired and built a team that can build these very large data sets that can be used for multiple projects. And it's been a really successful experience. But the only way I learned it is by, you know, trial and error and, and failure.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's not a waste of time if you learn something from it. So that's true. Overall, (laughs) it was a positive experience, but in the, in the moment I can imagine spending all that time for little outcome was frustrating. Yeah. My next question, what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours?
1: I I think data is critical. I think that um, um, taking time to um, learn about healthcare standards In, in informatics, you need to have a good breadth of knowledge of a lot in a lot of different uh, specialties and 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 fields of informatics, and the field is changing so rapidly. And uh, I think it's really important that uh, that researchers understand uh, healthcare data uh, standards, especially the new ones that are coming out, like OMOP, for example, is a very uh, is is one that's really taking the industry by storm. I think that. Uh, also, if you're a researcher in the space, you should have, even if you're only going to do research in one specific realm, you have a basic understanding of how AI models are built and validated and work. Um, you should have some knowledge of computer vision and an LPR start learning about newer technologies, such as federated learning, more decentralized methods for, uh, generating, uh, more generalizable models. And, uh, Yeah, so I think that, you know, for me, it was getting a master's in clinical research and taking some, uh, a lot of coursework in informatics and statistics um, was really helpful in kind of building uh, or filling in some of those building blocks that I needed.
0: We've had a lot of folks on here who um, have had formal education, but a good number of people, too, who have been self-taught in the area of AI, machine learning, and health. So I always find it interesting Mm -hmm. to hear more about people's backgrounds. Yeah, our last question for you is: What are you proudest of in your career and/or in your personal life?
1: Um, I think in the career is really the mentorship um, that I've been fortunate enough to give and see uh, mentees come to me and say, you know, someone comes in, they're like, "Hey, I'm, I'm new faculty here, or Hey, I'm a I'm a trainee here, and uh, I'm really interested in getting involved in this space. I don't know a huge amount about AI, for example, or informatics." I mean, like, it's okay, it's not a scary industry. Um, It's actually a lot of important stuff that you can do as a clinician um, working in the space um, and bringing people onto team. Usually I'll have people kind of work with me um, on a project kind of in a a side role, really just learning from osmosis, um, but then ultimately getting people to uh, run their own uh, project. And uh, there's two people that I've mentored and they're both pretty early in the career and both have gotten K awards. So it's great being a, a K mentee. Um, and I'm just really proud of uh, of being able to kind of get to people to that level of of getting a K grant. And now the pressure's on if I can uh, help them convert that into an R grant.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Mentorship is such a great and needed thing in the medical field. I I can't speak enough to the, the positive impact that a good mentor can have on a young career physician or a medical student, so. Thank you for providing yep, that
1: for people. Absolutely. Any yeah,
0: closing comments for our listeners today?
1: No, um, I think mainly we, uh, um, if you are if you're ever interested in collaborating, feel free to reach out. We have a very inclusive group. We, um, it's okay if you don't know anything about AI. or If you're an expert in AI, we are uh, really happy to take people under our wing and work with anyone and uh, help people um, achieve their goals. Uh, reducing medical error and improving outcomes because at the end of the day, that's really what these models are being built for is to uh, improve clinical outcomes and improve healthcare efficiency.
0: Fantastic. Dr. Tignanelli, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.